Thank you very much, Jen. Well, nice to see you, everyone. This is uh, quite a, a weird experience. I haven't preached in front of people for weeks, months, actually, and you have no idea how nervous I am. It's strange, isn't it? Anyway, there we are. As a child, I loved uh, looking at maps, and particularly sitting in the back of my car as our uh, parents would drive uh, around the place and picking up the, the Gregory's or the UBD. We were a Gregory's family, so it was always the Gregory's, and you'd pick it up and you'd follow exactly where you were going in the car. Now, I reckon Google Maps has done a lot of good for us, but it's ruined that fun in the back of the car. Now, you've got to play Angry Birds or something else like that in the back of the car. Not quite as much fun. Now, you might not be a, a maps person. You might not know which way to turn the map when it comes one way to another. It might be backwards, it might be forwards, you might not be sure which way to turn the map. And perhaps if you're sitting next to a significant other this morning, you shouldn't give their hand a little squeeze at this point. C.S. Lewis, however, he likened the reading of maps to the task of theology. Look at what he said, you'll see it on the screen here. He says, doctrines are like maps. They are not the reality, and they may not be as exciting as the reality... But they chart reality for us in a vital way. Just as studying a map of the shore of the Atlantic is not as exciting as walking along the Atlantic coast itself, so studying the doctrine of atonement is not exactly the same as experiencing the cross itself. But the purpose of a map is to represent, graph, and explain the reality. If you want to find your way, you need to have a reliable map, and we should consult it frequently. Today we re-enter a series that we've called Theology, a series about the various different types of theology that we find in the Bible. Now some will say, oh well I just love Jesus, I've been saved by him, that's all I need. And that's admirable and certainly it's also true. However, there is not a distinction between the, the head and the heart. It's not as if these practical matters have anything less to do with life in general. It is not just about having life wisdom in order to live our life here in this world. We learn theology in order that we might know God better and understand our lives more. In fact, a few weeks ago when we started this series, I said there were five important points, there would be more, but five important points about why we should be interested in theology. In short, let me recap them for us. First of all, everyone is a theologian. Everybody talks about God in some way. Even the atheist will do so just in the negative. They are equally a theologian. Everyone talks about God. Secondly, love and knowledge are connected so that I know my wife and therefore love her more. It is wrong to disconnect the head and the heart and say they are two separate things. Love and knowledge are connected. Thirdly, theology helps us to get life right now and life right forever because God is the sun around which the spiritual world orbits. Fourthly, Jesus taught us to do this work of theology. Remember, he said in the Great Commission, teach them all that I have commanded you. And fifthly, we saw that theology on its own It's not about interrogation, but adoration. 
It's my hope that at the end of today and at the end of this series, that we might find ourselves in a better position to love and adore our God who has revealed himself to us in his word and therefore in these doctrines as well. And so today we jump back into this series and we look at a a long word, a complicated word. We, We call it soteriology. Let's pray. That we might understand what that's about. Let's pray and we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray today that you would uh, teach us about this doctrine, soteriology, that we might understand you more deeply and love and appreciate what you have done for us. Uh, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we started the series, as you can uh, see on your screen, if you're in the building at least, uh, we started with bibliology, how God speaks to us. We then move to theology, who God is in his person, the triune God, three in one. We then talked about anthropology, how ourselves, our sinful selves, are fallen short of God, even though we're made in the image of God. We then turned to Christology and we saw the God-man, Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for us. And then finally, before we took a break, we saw pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. But today we come to soteriology. It's the longest and perhaps most complicated of all of the words in our series. But what does it mean? Well, it's the study of salvation. It comes from the Greek word soteria, which is the word for salvation. Today, we're going to have a look at what salvation is how salvation is achieved. And we're going to do so by looking at four questions. If you're taking notes, these are your four questions. First of all, why do we need salvation? Secondly, who saved us? Thirdly, how does God save? And that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. And then fourthly, why did God save us? So first of all, why do we need salvation? Forbes magazine, I had a look this week, uh, says that there are six things that every human being needs. Six things. I wonder if you can help me in the building. Uh, what, uh, what do you think was on the list? Oxygen. Oxygen. Yeah, well, that's, that's probably true. It actually wasn't on the list, strangely enough. Uh, food was on the list. That's one. Water was on the list. Shelter was on the list. The guitars. Did you write it, Pete? No, you didn't. Love. Well, there were other, other people. So, yes, relationships was on the list. Yeah. So that's a fourth one. Purpose. Uh, purpose. Yeah, no, it wasn't on this list, but it was on some other list I looked at. But you're right. Sleep was on the list, actually. Sleep was on the list. And strangely, the sixth one, I'm not sure what I think about this, but the sixth one on the list was novelty. There needs to be a difference to your life. I'm not sure our forefathers would have said that, but anyway, it was on the list. So food, water, shelter, sleep, other people, relationships, and novelty. But when it comes to the Bible's discussion of what we really need, well, it's not on the Forbes list, is it? Number one with a bullet is salvation, according to the Bible. What we need more than anything else is rescue. We need salvation. Now, why is this the case? Well, I don't want to recap for you everything we said in our sermon on anthropology about us as human beings, but safe to say we all have a very and vast deep need. Ephesians chapter 2 describes us as being dead in sin. Various other passages of scripture teach us that we are without hope, that we are slaves to sin, that we are children of wrath, that we are children of the evil one. There's a painted picture here in the scriptures that is not a popular one in our culture, but nonetheless it is true. 
We are not in a right place with God. And God does not allow this rebellion against him to go unpunished. He rightfully and justly condemns those who have sinned against him. Providing for them judgment and ultimately hell. And it's not a very good picture at all. What does the human being need? What do you need? What do I need more than anything else? We need salvation. We need it more than we need food, water, shelter, sleep, others, novelty. We need it more than anything. Salvation is our number one need as human beings. But secondly, who saved you? Thankfully, out of God's great love for us, Out of God's great mercy, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus. Again, we went over this in our Christology sermon. The the God-man, Jesus Christ, 100% God, 100% man, one person with two natures who lived a perfect life and died on the cross to pay our penalty and to be our substitute and to atone as a sacrifice in his own body for our sins. Who saved you? Jesus saved you. We can't save ourselves. Jesus came to earn our salvation. I know I've used this illustration before, but it is the case that spiritually we are in the middle of the Pacific Ocean trying to swim back to Australia. doesn't matter who. You can be Ariane Titmus. You're not going to be getting back there anytime soon. What you need is for someone to come and save you. And spiritually, Jesus comes to save us. He comes to the rescue. He comes to earn our salvation. So why do we need salvation? Well, we have a deep need because we are dead in our sins. But who saved us? The Lord Jesus. Now, none of this, none of this is new to us. And yet, neither of these two points really hit on what salvation is is see jesus wins salvation for us he earns it but the question is how does god apply that salvation to our lives which brings us to the third of our questions this morning where we'll spend a majority of our time how does god save us how does god save us well sometimes when we talk to one another we might say in our conversations with friends or family oh when did you get saved or how did you get saved and there might be a story or there might be some explanation about how you got saved when you became a Christian and they're great stories but for us they're quite simplistic experiences of what happened in our lives Biblically, however, when you talk about salvation, salvation is like a a cover-all word under which lies so many different aspects. So many different aspects that God has taken care of in order to provide complete and full salvation to us. It's a bit like love, isn't it? Love is a cover-all word the same way, isn't it? Love is a a cover-all word underneath which there are all sorts of different descriptions that you could give of love. Of course, there's that feeling of love when you fall in love with someone. But there's also a different feeling of loving a particular type of food. You don't fall in love with a Penang curry, do you? It's a different sort of love. And then there's the love that you have when you serve other people. And then, of course, there's sexual love, a different kind of love entirely. Love is a 
coverall word underneath which there are various different kinds of love. This morning, I want to help us understand our salvation a little more. Not just to see it as a coverall word, but to see what God is doing underneath it in order to save us. And what we're going to look at is things that God has done in the past, that he does in the present, and that he will do in the future, all of which speak of salvation. First of all, let's look at what God does in the past to secure our salvation. Let's have a look here. I'm going to pick up the past. Election. Election is what God does in the past in order to secure our salvation. In the Bible, it's also called calling or sometimes called predestination. God is at work in our lives before we are even born. Now, there are myriad passages we could look at to make sure that this is true. Let me show you just a couple on the screen here. You'll see them come up one by one. The first is from Acts chapter 13. Look at what uh, uh, Luke describes here as happening. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It's interesting, isn't it? They were appointed to eternal life. We see this again in Romans 8, the passage that Jen read for us. We know that those, uh, we know that those, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, and those who are called according to His purpose. Look at this: for for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called; and those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God did foreknow, predestine his people. Next one, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, right at the very beginning of the letter to the Ephesians, as you would have read in the, uh, in the Bible reading plan in the last couple of weeks, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then again, finally, in a, in a strange passage, but it's in Revelation chapter 17, uh, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it, it was and is not and is to come. Here we see in these passages, and we could have gone through a whole lot more, that God is at work in our lives for salvation before we are even born. Now, for some people, this is a real worry for them. This is in, somehow, in some way unfair and seems to be unlike God that he might do such a thing and not leave it up to us to choose after him. Now, if you have a question about that, please feel free to ask a question. We'll do some question time a little later on. Slido.com, hashtag HBSP. But consider this for a moment. No one, no one anywhere is deserving of salvation to begin with. And that God would give his love to some and not others need not be by definition unfair. Think of my children for a moment. Is it possible that I could give a gift exclusively to one child and not to another? Of course it is. 
I can give a gift to one of my children and not be unfair to the other two, and that's perfectly fine. What's often related in this uh, election problem for people is the way people think about humanity in general. I've shown you this before, but let me show you again for the sake of it. Sorry for the camera people. Most people think of human beings coming into the world neutrally. They're good people. They come into the world neutrally and then they decide to be a good person and go to heaven or be a bad person and go to hell. But the Bible describes something completely different to that. It says that when we come into the world, we are already born with a sinful nature which puts us in the judgment and hell category before we even start. We don't come into the world and then decide which way to go, and neither does God. We all belong in this bucket, destined to judgment and hell. But God, in his electing grace, takes his big claw, if you like, like those big claw machines with the toys in them at the the, uh, arcades, and he'll pick one up and take them out into salvation. And so God is not being unjust in not saving those who remain in the bucket of judgment and hell. He is still being just because he's still giving them what we all deserve. What is unfair is that God would take any one of us and bestow his grace upon us. That, that part is unfair. What he is doing in allowing everybody else to take judgment and hell is perfectly reasonable and fair for we've all sinned and fall short of God's glory. What's important for us to remember is that none of us deserve that salvation. All of us deserve to be in that bucket which faces judgment. And yet God in his grace elects some to belong to him. And though this doctrine troubles us in some ways, biblically it's never seen to be a trouble at all. In fact, biblically, there are two things that the Bible focuses on when it talks about election and predestination and calling. The first is comfort. This makes sense, doesn't it? If salvation depended upon me only to make a choice towards God, then am I strong enough to hold on to that conviction for my whole life? But if God chooses me to be saved... And as the book of 1 Peter says, guards that salvation by the power of God himself, then it is a a work of comfort for me that God would choose me to be saved because it depends upon him alone. And so the second thing is praise. Praise is to God because it's all of his work. He picks us up and he takes us to his son. Election is more than just looking into the future and knowing what we will choose. It is God's electing, predestining, bestowal of love in ages past that he gives to us. And so here is the the first aspect of, of salvation. It's in the past and it's election. Now we come to the present. Of course, if we've been chosen to belong to Christ... We still experience a time in our own lives when we become a Christian. And the Bible has various words for what's going on when this happens. I'll put in a moment five words across here. And there is a logical order to them, but in the Bible, all of them happen together. 
A few weeks ago when Matt Alder preached, he mentioned in his question time a thing called the ordo salutis, the logical order of salvation. And that's what we're going to have a look at just in a moment. But it all starts when we hear the gospel message. When the gospel message is proclaimed to us, God then grants salvation through the preaching of the gospel message, leading first of all to what the Bible calls regeneration or new life. God gives us new spiritual life. He takes us from spiritual death that Ephesians 2 speaks about and allows us to be born again to new life. Look at just a couple of these passages starting with John chapter 1. Look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1 says, Those who are born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but born of God. And John chapter 3 goes on uh, to say it more fully as Jesus meets Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And then finally, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And so it goes on. God causes us to be born again. We call that regeneration. And God makes it happen in our lives. How many of you remember your own birth? I'm guessing not many. There might need to be a lot more therapists around if we all did. I don't remember Thursday, September the 13th, 1979 at all, thankfully. It would be weird if I did. And nothing that happened on that day of my birth is anything that I remember. Nothing that I contributed on that day helped me to be physically born into this world. And so it is with our spiritual birth. God makes us regenerate by his grace. He gives us and grants us new life and new birth. Secondly, conversion. This is what we experience as a new direction in our life. This is our experience of salvation. This is the story you tell when you come to be saved. And what happens on that occasion is two things in particular. You are putting your faith in Jesus and turning away from sin, repentance and faith. And though it is a one-off action that happens as we are converted to Christ, the pattern of repentance and faith is a pattern we continue to go through throughout our entire lives. It is more than just a feeling. It is more than just knowledge. It is turning our lives around by the power of God, away from sin and towards Christ. Look at these two passages, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and then Ephesians chapter 2. When Jesus came, he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What should you do? Repent and believe or have faith in the gospel. And Ephesians 2 says, by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And it's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. As we turn away from sin and turn towards Christ, this is what the Bible calls, uh, this is what the Bible calls uh, conversion. And even this comes from God. It is all a gift from beginning to end, a gift of God. But here's the problem. The problem is that our legal status before God has not changed. God might have given us new birth and new spiritual life. God might have helped us to turn away from sin and turn towards Christ, but we've still got a life in our background of being a sinner rejecting God. We are legally a criminal before God. Well, that's the third aspect that God brings to our salvation. Another big word, justification. A new status before God. Your permanent record before God is stained because of sin. And even if you've been given new life and new birth, you still have a past so that you are not in right standing with God. It's like a criminal, isn't it? A criminal may have great sorrow for what they've done. A criminal may have even paid the penalty for what they have done in society, in the community, but there are still, there's still a record against them. There's still consequences to what they have done. And so it is with us before God, but God takes care of what we really need. Not only giving us new life, but giving us a new status legally before God. We are made not guilty. In fact, more than that, we're made righteous. See, look at this passage from Romans chapter 3. See it on the screen here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's the good news. You have now not only been brought to new life in Jesus through regeneration and turn in faith and repentance through conversion, but you have been made righteous, forgiven before God. You are no longer considered condemned and a criminal anymore 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 bears this out a little more look at what it says for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God God doesn't just forgive us he also gives to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus so that we're not just forgiven from being bad to being neutral but we are now 100% righteous With all of the righteousness and perfection of Christ, that's what justification brings to us. It is not just as if I'd never sinned, although that's part of it. It is just as if I'd done everything right all the time. Justification is a new status before God, but I'm not sure if you're like me. You look at your life and you say, well, that's that's not my life. I'm not perfect now. I'm not righteous like Jesus now. Well, that's the fourth aspect of what God does in the present. We call this one 
sanctification or progressive newness. We know in practice we are not righteous before God at the moment. But sanctification is the process of putting off sin and putting on Christ. Now, this is where some people get a little messed up. They say to themselves, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. I know my own life. How could I possibly be a follower of Jesus if I do that or I do that? And as true as it is that we should not be walking in sin, our perfection will only come in the future. And yet, our sanctification in Jesus Christ has been sealed. Look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. And such were some of you, but you were, past tense, washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. We've been sealed. But over time, we will become more like Christ. And we will work together with God to bring about this conclusion as we put off the old self and put on the new self. Look at these two passages that illustrate this. Colossians 3 verse 10 and then Hebrews chapter 12. Have put on the new self, which is being renewed. We only saw this a few weeks ago in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then Hebrews 12. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We won't be perfected until glory But together with God, we work in sanctification to bring about what God has already sealed in us. And then finally, in this little present section, we have the last one on the list, perseverance or persistent newness. This is another way of saying everyone who is saved will get to the end. Throughout the ups and downs of your life, if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, know this, God gets you to the end. You might be in a real hard patch right now. And if you are in a hard patch right now, know this, God will get you to the end. This is what he promises to all whom he has elected, all whom he has made new and given conversion to, all who he's justified and is in the process of sanctifying And we know this from various passages. Look at John chapter 6. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 10 says the same thing. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And then finally, Ephesians 1. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You will persevere if you have true faith in the Lord Jesus. So how can we know if that is the case? How can we know we will persevere until the end? Well, when you see Christ-like growth in your life, when you see that sanctification, that is proof positive that God is working in your life. 
Likewise, when you continue in faith throughout difficulty and hardship, when you continue in faith apart from all of the distractions of the world, you know that you have that true faith. This is what Jesus speaks about, isn't it, in the parable of the sower. Those who will grow up in Christ for a time and then walk away are those who will not continue in hardship and will find the distractions too much. But God will save all those who belong to him. God will get you there in the end. That's what perseverance is. And so all of these things come in our present experience. This is the present aspect of our salvation, regeneration and conversion and justification and sanctification and perseverance. And they all come at once in what Jesus does for us. But there is one future aspect as well, just one. A future aspect that the Bible calls glorification. Glorification. Now, as Jen read for us before, and you might have picked up, in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, this also is sealed. We have been glorified. And yet it lies in the future, without a doubt. In the future, we will have victory over sin. We will overcome the world. We will be resurrected into a new body. We will be given healing and complete sanctification. This is the final act of salvation that is waiting for us. And so this is how God saves you. This is how he applies the work of Jesus to your life. And know this, there is no door that is still open when it comes to salvation. God has shut every door and made everything happen so that you are completely and utterly saved. Salvation is a coverall term that we can use at a superficial level, but when we get deeper into it, we see it as the multifaceted diamond that it is, beautiful in every way. God saves you. God elects you. God gives you new birth. God gives you conversion, repentance and faith. God gives you justification, sanctification, perseverance and glorification. It all comes from him. And so why did he save you? Well, let's finish just quickly with these five things. Why did he save you? First of all, he saved you for his glory. God is glorious in himself and in his person. But he is also glorious in his actions. Look at Romans chapter 11, verse 36. This is how Paul responds when he hears, uh, when he finishes speaking about the gospel. Oh, the depth of the riches and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counsellor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then in uh, in Ephesians chapter 1 and uh, chapter 3, we see the purpose of, uh, of, of these things that God does, and it's for his glory, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time. In the bottom one, Ephesians 3, this was according to his eternal purpose. Why did God save us? Well, for his glory. But he also saved us for other reasons. He saved us, secondly, for good works or good fruit. This is the result of salvation. The result of our salvation is that we ought to have a life that is full of good fruit or good works. Look at these two passages, well-known ones, Ephesians 2 verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for beforehand. 
And then Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23 is the fruit of the Spirit. I won't read them out, but you know them well. This is, how, this is what God has saved us for. Now, the mistake here is to say that the good works are to be smuggled into the salvation so that God will judge us for our good works rather than judging us on the basis of what he has done in Christ. It is the fruit rather than under the banner of salvation. Well, as we finish, finally, three things that God, uh, three reasons, final reasons that God saves us. We'll look at these over the next couple of weeks. First of all, to make disciples, as Matthew chapter 28 tells us, to be involved in mission, as we'll look at next week, and to stand in his church. So why does it matter that God has saved us? Well, it matters because it is his work and not ours. And it is completed for us in Christ and applied to our lives by God himself. And though we experience our salvation personally and firsthand, it depends completely upon him. And that is why we praise him. Look at chapter 11, verse 38 of the book of Romans one last time. Down the bottom. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, I want to give us some opportunity to talk about this some more because it's a difficult doctrine to think about and a big topic to go over in just a small amount of time. So uh, I'd love you to ask a question or two, have, uh, have an opportunity to do that or even just reflect and think for yourself just now. Uh, why don't take a note or two or write something on slido.com using the hashtag HBSP and I'll come back in a moment and answer a couple of questions. All right, thank you for your questions. A couple of things uh, that are coming through here. First of all, uh, Trish, uh, can you comment on why Jesus called people to repent if some were already elected? Thanks, Trish. Um, Trish, that's a good question. There's two things that I'd say about that. The first of all is it's in Mark's gospel. And so Jesus is talking to the nation of Israel in large part. The kingdom of God has come. And so he's talking to people that by rights should have been a part of uh, God's people already and talking to them to repent. So there's a, 
They may not have been personally elected, but he's, he's talking to them as if they are God's people, so that's part of it there as well. But, uh, but uh, the repentance that he uh, asks for is like the preaching of the gospel. Uh, so the preaching of the gospel is to elicit a response from people. And so uh, he's to ask them to repent, even though uh, he will know that not everybody in the group will repent. So it's, that's the part of the preaching of the gospel uh, that, uh, that he does there. So I hope that's helpful. Second one, in what way does sanctification look different to self-righteousness? Uh, how can I grow in my faith and not just think I'm a good person? Yeah, it's a great question. I think sanctification is not about being a good person. It's about being a Jesus person, more like Christ rather than more uh, like the world around us. I think um, there are a lot of really, really, really good and nice people in our community, but they're not being sanctified if they're not Christians. It's a big difference. So being nice in our community or being a kind person uh, is, is not the same as being sanctified. Being more like Jesus is what it means to be sanctified. Now, sometimes that will make you more irritating to people rather than actually a good person because that's what Jesus was like, wasn't he? When he told people to repent, they didn't like him. When he, told, when he spoke about heaven and hell, they didn't like him. Uh, when he spoke about money and, and uh, sex and all those things that Jesus spoke about, they didn't like him. And so being more like Jesus may actually end up with you being less of a good person in the eyes of the community because you are a Christ-like person. And so I think that's, that's one of the important parts. In relation to the self-righteousness piece of the puzzle, I would say if you always remember that sanctification is always a sealed gift of God, you can't become self-righteous because of what you've done because you haven't actually done anything. And so I think that's an important thing uh, to say there as well. Uh, third one, this is a good one. Why did God make it so complicated? That's a good question. Uh, the answer is because we're complicated uh, and, uh, and also because uh, the, there are so many loose ends to tie up in order to secure our salvation. Uh, there are so many loose ends. Now, it's perfectly fine just to get the coverall word of salvation and say, I've been saved, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that, that's fine. But when you get down underneath the word and you look at all of the other biblical aspects to our salvation, uh, then you see that God has left no stone unturned in saving us. And that's the best news about it all. Uh, And that's the purpose, I think, of all of this this morning, is to show us that God has left no stone unturned in our salvation. Uh, And yet we can stay at that surface level and talk about salvation. Nothing wrong with that. That's fine. Uh, But the further down we get, we end up like Paul and say, I can't help but praise God for what he's done in leaving no stone unturned. Um, Last question is from Rod. I really appreciated the focus on sanctification. How good is it uh, that this is an ongoing act of God's grace? How can I submit better to it? Um, well, I think, uh, I, I think it's, thanks for the question, Rod. I think it's related to uh, what we talked about in, in conversion as well. Repentance and faith is a daily activity for us. And as we hear what God uh, likes and how he wants us to trust him, then I think that will help us to, to grow in our sanctification as well. And so I think, uh, uh, like always, it's about understanding God more and understanding ourselves more so that we might come and turn away from sin and turn towards God as well. Thanks for your questions. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you have left no stone unturned in saving us. Uh, Please help us, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing. Please stand.